Good morning. Welcome to this assembly of the Laurel Heights Church of Christ. As we begin this morning, we want to invite you to come back this evening at 5 o'clock, Wednesday night Bible class at 7.30. And I want to mention classes for children. Parents need to be aware of that opportunity. Consistent attendance and participation can play a part in preparing your children for a good future with God. I have talked to some of our parents in person this week. The next quarter begins November the 4th and we are seeking your interest and your commitment and your participation. I know that all of us pray for the good spiritual future of our children, but prayer should be accompanied by action, consistency, and commitment. I'll be talking to other parents this week, hoping to continue to build interest and remind us of how important this is. Now today, Romans 16, I'm going to read verses 17 and 18 in just a minute. The Apostle Paul was a man of great love and patience, but he was also a man who was serious about danger. Certain people are dangerous to themselves and to others and to the Lord's cause. Paul said, watch out for them, avoid them. Listen, please, Romans 16, 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. At first, to some, it may sound rough or crude or harsh. Watch out for these people. Avoid them. <clears throat> but then you look back at the passage and you observe specifically what kind of people Paul says to watch out for and avoid. He identifies it with great clarity. Those who cause divisions. <clears throat> then he says, those who create obstacles. And he goes further. He says, with smooth talk, and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the innocent. Isn't it clear why Paul said, watch out. Watch out for these kind of people. Avoid them. And then there's something else he says that I want to call to your attention this morning. He says, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. Not only is Paul justifying issuing this warning, 
But within the warning, we learn something. That serving the Lord and serving your appetite are mutually exclusive. They're in direct contradiction. You cannot do both at the same time. I cannot faithfully serve the Lord if I'm serving my self-centered appetite at the same time. Jesus must be in charge of my life, not my appetite. By the way, if you have the King James, the expression is, they are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly. That's pretty vivid. I want to speak to us today about the power of appetite. And my burden is to be extremely clear <clears throat> about a core component of temptation. In order for us to serve God, we need to be clear about this. Because we are called to serve God without any loyalty given to inordinate, self-destructive appetite. I cannot rationalize that I'm serving the Lord with most of my life, but there is this little part of my life that is reserved for Friday night or Saturday night or down at the club are in front of a TV screen where I am factoring into my life raw, inordinate, self-destructive appetite. Either we serve our Lord Jesus Christ wholly or we do not serve Him at all. When we speak of appetite, as the term is used by Paul, we are not in this passage talking about simple preferences and taste and legitimate natural desire fulfilled in good ways. Paul would not say, watch out for people who have natural desires that are fulfilled in good ways. Paul is talking about inordinate, self-destructive, raw May I add another adjective? Carnal appetite. In conversations, we sometimes express our preferences and our taste. We may prefer a certain brand of coffee. And we may use the word, we have an appetite for this particular brand. Paul is not talking about that sort of thing. We may have a taste or a fondness for a certain kind of food or music or a sports team. And in those contexts, we may use the words taste or desire or appetite. Paul isn't talking about those things. He would not say, watch out for people who have this particular appetite that is fulfilled in a good way. No, this is raw, carnal appetite. This is belly appetite, King James says. That is selfish, that is immature, that is ungodly, and that cares nothing of damage done to God, damage done to self, or God being offended. It is a craving to have what you want that you shouldn't have and that you don't need. 
It is a desire for satisfaction that resists good discipline that is contrary to wise living and serving the Lord. I want to speak to us about the deadly power of appetite. Remember now, this is not about wanting to nourish your body. By the time I finish this sermon, some of you will have an appetite to go to lunch. Paul isn't saying, watch out for those people. We're talking about raw, carnal appetite that cannot coexist in the same heart that claims to be serving the Lord. It is a dynamic expression of selfishness in this passage. This is what I want. I will have it no matter what. The power of appetite is on display in religion. Today, manufactured religion is on almost every corner in every community that ignores God's word and that caters to raw appetite. Churches offering virtually anything that caters to human appetite, though without any scriptural basis or teaching. It is appetite-driven religion. Paul said, watch out. Churches sometimes are more interested in trends and marketing and raw appetite than Bible truth. Human appetite is king. Paul says, watch out for that. So in individual behavior, in families, in government, in churches, one can observe the power of raw, carnal appetite, wanting what you do not need and doing anything you can to fulfill that desire. On the individual level, we're going to explore this together. How does the Bible describe this particular dimension of sin? I have an example. I'm going to turn over to Acts chapter 8. And I shall begin at verse 9 and read through verse 24. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9, reading through verse 24. An example of what we're talking about. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, 
May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Here's this man, Simon. He had an appetite for amazing people. And that appetite was fed when people considered him great. And he became a celebrity in Samaria and he loved it. Verse 10 says, They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And you can just see Simon swelling as people identified him with deity and his appetite building. We can't identify with celebrity status. We can imagine what it was like for Simon. But it's easy for us to observe he savored his status. He wanted something he didn't need and shouldn't have. It felt good and over time he developed this thriving appetite for this attention and this praise to be called divine and great and he had fans and he lived on that. It says he amazed the people with his magic. But then something happened to change the people and then to change him, at least to begin to change him. When Philip the evangelist came to town, Philip preached the good news of salvation in Christ. He spoke of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. How did the people respond? It says in verse 12, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13 says, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he spent some time with Philip. They had been baptized, but there were gifts needed that the Spirit distributed back then. The apostles came from Jerusalem, and when they laid hands on new Christians, they received the Holy Spirit. Guess who's watching? Simon saw something he'd never seen, and his appetite for amazing things kicked in, and he offered money for this power. And he heard this response, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter's not finished. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Wow. That's conviction, isn't it? What do you do when your appetite that is wrong in the first place leads you into additional sin? 
This passage sends the message, what you do is you repent. It's serious. You don't offer appetite as an excuse. You don't argue any justification from your background. I've loved this sort of thing for a long time. You don't offer your previous life as an excuse or the status that you once had being considered divine and great. When appetite is sin and leads you into further sin, God wants to see next repentance. Genuine remorse and shame that leads to the activity of change. And Simon, according to verse 24, did so. That's an example of raw carnal appetite. Paul is not talking about people who are hungry and fix a legitimate meal. He's not saying, watch out for those. He's saying, watch out for people with raw carnal appetite who want something they ought not to have in the first place and then sin to get what they ought not to have. This is an example. And the right response is repentance. Please beware that we are becoming a grasping society. We want more. We often want what we see that we don't need. That destroys us. That hurts others and offends God. We want satisfaction but without discipline and pause and control. We slip into a lifestyle of sinful desires that lead to sinful words and sinful actions. And Peter says to us, as he said to Simon, repent of this, your wickedness. And this leads me to speak more now of what we need to do when we detect the lure of appetite. James 4 and verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Send him away. When he creates that wrong desire, send him away. If you let that wrong desire simmer, and you let the devil lead you to act on that wrong desire, send him away then, send him away. Instead of letting the power of raw appetite get me into further sin, is there something I can do to bring desire under control, to prevent the sin that immoderate appetite urges on me? This says, submit to God. The Bible is so simple. There is no complicated formula. There's not a book that somebody wrote last year that gives you the structure of what you need to do. The Bible is this simple, submit to God. But now we need to talk about what that means. The word submit here doesn't mean to put up with. We use it that way sometimes. Well, I don't like it, but I guess I'll submit to it. That's not what it means here. It is not something you do with regret. Or any hesitance. It is not submitting to any burden. Well, I've got to obey God. No. 
Submitting to God identifies the full range and joy of willing obedience to His authority. Glad that you can do it. Happy that you can read about what you need to do. Knowing that obeying God is far better than becoming a slave to destructive appetite. Submitting is the full range and joy of obeying God. Knowing that He made you and gave you instructions for good life here and thereafter. Now, if you do that sincerely and with genuine commitment, there's something that goes along with submitting to God. Resisting the devil. See, the devil is the one who is delivering these wrong appetites into you. And the devil is then the one who is leading you to fulfill those wrong appetites with additional sin. And that's what Paul's talking about. The word resist is as strong as the word submit. Two sides of the Christian life that dovetail. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Say yes to God. Say no to the devil. The idea is it is good to obey God. It is so bad to obey the devil. I will resist him and strongly commit myself to submitting to God. This is what my response to appetite should be. As I detect I'm becoming enslaved to alcohol... Sexual sin, the distraction of materialism, or some human philosophy. I go back to these two basics. I submit to God and resist the devil. I become engaged in the full range of willing obedience to God. At the same time, I determine to put up a vigorous resistance against the devil. And what will the result be that James identifies? He will flee from you. There's another part of responding to the power of appetite. And I'm going to call this remedy. And I'm going to go over to what Mike read for us earlier in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul and I undertook a huge project this past summer. With Victor as our consultant, we landscaped the backyard. We hauled in stones and plants and dirt and crushed rock and all that sort of thing. We got grandkids involved. It was very hard work. But once we were finished, it really looked nice. And after a few hours of work one day, I'm sitting on the patio with Victor. And we're talking about how nice it all looks. And we are relaxing and we have a nice breeze on the patio and there's comfortable reclining chairs and cold water. You remember that day, Victor, and I I had this sense, boy, it's good to be done. 
And then Victor opened his mouth. He said, well, we've got to talk about how this is going to be irrigated and weed control and mowing and maintenance. Talk about spoiling the moment. Once you have a nice garden, <clears throat> you're not done. You have to work it and maintain it and nurture it and keep Satan and his weeds away. <clears throat> when you become a Christian, right out of the waters of baptism, you can begin to grow this garden of virtue we've read about in Galatians 5. And as you grow these plants, carnal appetite is brought under control and expelled and selfishness is rejected. But it's not like going out in the garden and dropping the seeds and putting some water in and relaxing. There is the maintenance of that garden. See, after you're baptized, you, what you become is a spiritual horticulturist. You have to take care of what is planted. You are a gardener and the garden is your life. God gave you in Christ. As these plants grow and flourish, <clears throat> carnal appetite fades away. Lust and passions are conquered. Sinful desire is crucified. You become convinced that whatever sacrifice and effort must be applied in that garden, your life, <clears throat> you want this fruit to flourish, to please God, to keep Satan and his weeds away. The society we occupy encourages carnal appetite and fulfillment. Modern thought is pushed every day, every moment through the media. And the message is, you deserve whatever you want, no matter what it is, go for it. Unrestrained living is celebrated today. Don't hold back, the devil is whispering and shouting. Whatever you want, grab it. But living your life based on sensual appetite against the will of God is really not new. There was Esau and Samson and Jezebel and Judas and Solomon and Demas and so many others. It takes strong character and power to resist living as a slave to appetite. <clears throat> and there's only one place to receive that character and that power. Jesus Christ believed and obeyed beginning with repentance and baptism, continuing after baptism as a daily disciple of Jesus Christ and as a spiritual gardener, horticulturist. In that way of life, raw, carnal appetite is defeated and righteous, beautiful, victorious living is possible. What is your response as we stand together to sing?